Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Carl Shear, the chief investment officer of the University of Cincinnati's Billion Dollar Endowment. Before taking the helm at Cincinnati in 2011, Carl co-ran a family office and spent eight years in the venture capital industry. Our conversation covers Carl's background, running a family office in the teeth of the global financial crisis, high-functioning governance, avoiding the worst managers, taking the hard road, conducting due diligence with popular managers and without checklists, and picking your spots. Please enjoy my conversation with Carl Shear. 
Carl, thanks for joining me. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Glad to be here. Why don't we start with how you got in the seat in the first place? Sure, sure. So I think that just like everybody else, I have a bizarre story for how I became the CIO of the University of Cincinnati. I started as a bicycle mechanic. Right oh, yeah, that's the normal path. Normal, yeah, so I started out as a bike mechanic living with my brother in Madison, Wisconsin. And that was post-college? Post-college. Didn't come out of college with a job, partially deliberately, although looking back now, I think that may have been a mistake. But in any case, I have had the great pleasure of learning about a lot of things from a bunch of different types of roles. The one thing I learned there is that I don't leave until all the bikes are done. And if that's the case, if I'm going to work really hard at something, it might as well be something lucrative that has a big impact on the world, right? So had a close friend who was working at a venture capital firm in Seattle. And after four or five months, whatever, at the bike shop, he invited me out for an internship at this venture capital firm. This was kind of late 90s. So it was a very exciting time to be engaged in that kind of activity. And if I recall correctly, he said, if you can be here Monday morning and dressed in a tie, you can have this internship. I think it was like Saturday night. So it was a kind of a heavy lift to get out there. But theme number one, try to seize those opportunities when they come up. So went out and was in this two-week internship that turned into a two-month internship that turned into two years. And all of the lower-level people except me left for various reasons. And so it was like six partners and me. And they didn't talk to each other about what I was working on. And so I ended up working on some incredible, fantastic stuff, stuff I had no business uh, working on, term sheets and some analysis. It was an amazing experience and also good 100-hour-week type experience because there's six partners and one analyst. <laughs> there's a lot yeah. to do. So after spending a while at this venture capital firm, I looked around the world and said, what would be a plausible next step that would make sense? And I thought the three alternatives were stay in venture capital world, move closer to companies, actually join a, a startup, or move farther away from companies and invest across different venture capital funds, and then probably also buyout funds and distress funds and so forth. And I took that role. I thought it'd be more interesting to apply what I'd learned at the partnership across a bunch of different funds and indirectly joined Frank Russell and worked with the CFO there. He's an amazing person called Hal Strong, a great mentor of mine. And Hal and I worked on some special projects together, including I spent about whatever it was, two or three months doing their survey of alternative investments. So I called all the CIOs in America and a bunch in Japan and France, staying up all night and speaking bad French and no Japanese whatsoever, and learned a lot about what CIOs were doing at the time, which ended up being very valuable. What questions were you asking? Along the lines of what is your current allocation to privates, to hedge funds and so forth? Do you plan to increase, decrease? Do you plan on changing your strategy at all? Kind of normal questions around what are their plans? This was early 2000s. So it was, was it a check the box exercise or were you trying to have conversations with them to understand what was going on? Well, there was the basic check the box. There was some, I need four numbers or whatever. But I also tried to build relationships, tried to understand what people were doing more deeply than that. And I don't know, maybe maybe one out of six or one out of eight conversations actually ended up being fruitful and interesting. And I got more out of it than just my five numbers that I need to write down on the page. Yeah. And how many outbound calls did you make for this? I probably called several dozen in Japan, a couple dozen in France, and maybe 60 in the U.S. And across a range of asset owner types, from endowments to foundations, pensions, mostly those three institutional investor types. But uh, it was a fascinating experience. What did you learn from doing it? I learned that people were very excited about alternatives, were not super confident in their ability to execute. Again, it was 2002. So for some of these groups, it was quite a new experience. And I also learned that, well, what I thought I already knew, which was that the most impressive, exciting returns were often available in private structures. 
and many folks thought that, but weren't exactly sure how to access them. How long were you at Russell with Hal? I was at Russell a couple years, and then Russell acquired a group called Pantheon Ventures, a fund of funds down in San Francisco. And I shipped off down to San Francisco with my pregnant wife and giant coon hound and big truck. By the way, it doesn't work very well in San Francisco. (laughs) And joined Pantheon, amazing firm, really intelligent people, learned a lot about the nuts and bolts, the nitty gritty of due diligence for partnerships for private funds is great experience. What role were you playing? Well, I formally joined Pantheon, but for some folks there, I think there was a level of distrust. Like I came from Mother Russell and they didn't know exactly how to deal with me. Was I a spy? I was very close friends with the CFO of Russell at the time. So uh, I think there was a level of distrust, but over time, I think I integrated myself well with the team and they were, they were ultimately welcoming. I did a fair amount of quantitative analysis and due diligence at our office in San Francisco with a handful of on-sites and also helped monitor annual meetings. So I wasn't making final decisions or anything, but the people I reported to were Susan Long, Andrews, and Gary Hyatt. And they believe that the youngest person should talk first, right? After a meeting, ask the youngest, newest person what his or her opinion is, and you start to train people to have good opinions and so forth. And that was an extremely valuable lesson, both because... It trained me to try to think of how do you characterize this within our portfolio, but also how do you run a team? So that was a great lesson. How did your time there progress? Well, interestingly, the team was undergoing some progression. Susan went on maternity leave for a few months. We had a couple folks move over to our secondary team, which was experiencing some really nice growth. And so the team shrank. So the folks there got, again, sort of more and more responsibility just by dint of things needed to get done. And after a couple years of doing that, in learning a ton, my wife said, hey, we have to move back to the Midwest now. This just isn't what we want out of life. And so let's move back to the Midwest. I searched around Cincinnati, Ohio, where I was born, where she's from, and found a family office that was kind of on the upswing, was developing a very institutional approach to investing, had a very sizable pool of capital, and moved back to join them as one of three investment professionals running this kind of endowment-like portfolio. Again, there was a decision point there where there were some other things that I could have done in Cincinnati that would have been more along the lines of continuing the work I'd done with private equity. And I wanted to try to expand and improve and gain new experiences by starting with a whole institutional portfolio, asset allocation and implementation within each asset category. When you show up at the family office, what was there? in terms of the investment portfolio? What was there was an outsourced CIO, a very brilliant man, a mathematician, who was the CIO but lived in New York. And he, as a mathematician and math professor, felt like bond math was the big shortcoming that I hadn't studied bond math. I didn't have an MBA or PhD or anything, and that was something that he meant to resolve. So for six months, I sat at my desk in Mason, Ohio, and did problem sets, did math problem sets, bond math, reproduced duration calculations, modified duration calculations, and so forth. It was not something I think I was very excited about at the time. It has been incredibly valuable to intuitively understand how that affects the whole panoply of investment assets. Sort of a non-traditional way of training. (laughs) There were only three people on the team, and was the guy in New York kind of running the portfolio? He was running the portfolio, and the two of us in Mason were executing on his strategy. We spoke every day. It was fairly seamless, and traveling, we often traveled together. So it was not that different, maybe, than if he had been in the office with us. In fact, I'm not even sure you would characterize it. It wasn't that meaningful of a difference. It got different when he left in August of 2008. All of a sudden, things were importantly different, and my colleague and I there, Tim Cavanaugh, who's still running it, were suddenly in the driver's seat, and... 
I think that we handled that transition very well. It was obviously an extremely exciting time to be in the investment world. We were, just a couple, yeah. <laughs> we were just a couple of weeks before Lehman went banco. And we had some initiatives in the portfolio. We basically said, no move is a good move right now. Hold still. Take off our riskiest asset categories. Take off our high-yield muni bonds. Take off a few other things we were doing. And focus on the core of our portfolio. Make sure that none of our cash was at risk you know, kind of batten down the hatches, but don't make any huge asset allocation changes. Don't make any huge manager changes outside of those kind of incremental. What did that portfolio look like at the time? It looked more or less like what you would think of it as an endowment portfolio. It had, let's just call it rough numbers, half global equity, a quarter alternatives and a quarter fixed income. And so that's very rough numbers, but it was a relatively safe portfolio going into the crisis. And it survived very, very well. If I recall correctly, we were down somewhere in the range of 12, 13, 14 for the crisis, which compared to many portfolios was a big success. Yeah. You had just spent all this time in the venture capital world. Now you're working for a family. How did you approach venture? One key takeaway from my time in venture capital world is if you can't be with the best manager, don't do it. Not don't spend much time on it or try to find a fancy way. to Don't do it at all. Don't bother. And how do you define the best Venture capital firm. The best venture capital firms, I think there's such serial correlation, there's such performance persistence in it, which I think is natural. If you think about the advantages to a venture capital firm of having taken Google public and having connections with the founders and so forth, not any specific venture capital, I don't mean to mention a specific firm, but I think that that reflects incredibly well on up and coming entrepreneurs and they want to be able to meet with the famous entrepreneurs and they want to meet with the folks who, and so I think there's a very valuable momentum that accrues to venture capital firms. And thus, there's only maybe a dozen. I'm not exactly sure what the number is, but you kind of know them when you see them. And if you can't be in those groups, then it's a very difficult place to make money. And it takes a huge, huge amount of time. For a tiny little team sitting in Cincinnati, Ohio, none of us went to Stanford GSB, so it didn't make any sense for us to spend time on that area probably waste money, certainly waste time that we could better spend elsewhere. Yeah. So there was no venture in the portfolio? I didn't do any venture from when I became a CIO until this spring. Yeah. Venture has been such a big driver of returns for a lot of those peers. So how do you think about either explaining your investment approach or just accepting that there's a piece that certain pools of capital have access to that you don't? We try never to do things for the wrong reasons. And that comes from a maybe even broader philosophical tenet, which is usually people focus very much on what's there. They don't focus on what's not there. So for example, if you look at a percentage, you think, okay, there's the percentage and judge what it reflects on the world. Very rarely do we think of what the numerator and denominator mean, right? Very rarely do people think of what the assets and liabilities mean. And of course, both are incredibly important. You shouldn't take either for granted. So our philosophical foundation is don't do things for the wrong reasons. Don't do venture because other people are having success in venture. What other people are doing in venture capital may have absolutely nothing to do with what you could do, right? So there's no overlap and it doesn't make any sense to chase them, even if you're basically envious of their returns. And so you have to be pretty disciplined about identifying what's possible and pursuing it. In cases where we are able to unpack other endowments returns and identify that quarter their returns or half their returns or sometimes all their returns come from venture, we look and say, ah, well, too bad we didn't start this 25 years ago, but we didn't. And so there's no reason to screw it up now trying to fix that. What was different when you took over this portfolio from the family in being in that seat than just sitting there and helping 
guy in New York run it? The family office had wonderful clients whom we were very closely connected to. And it turned into a very direct relationship where we went and sat with them pretty much every week during the fall of 2008 and early 2009 and explained what it was that we owned, reassured them that the world probably was not going to end and help them survive through what was an extremely difficult time, obviously, for everybody involved. One of the differences between family offices and big institutional pools of capital is it's actually their money. They feel it a little bit more than the rest of us do. There's a principle there that's the actual owner of the capital. And a similarity that you might not expect is that they are very much stewards of that capital for future generations. One of the things I'm very impressed by with family, now family offices are each a universe of one, right? But the ones I've met and respect very much think of it as a long-term pool of capital for a benefit that maybe hasn't yet been identified. So we nurtured our group through that fall period and the beginning of the next year. And to their credit, they started to get aggressive in early 2009. And we were able to start making offensive moves, moves to try to make money from the experience. You mentioned when you're having the conversation with them that the world probably isn't going to end. And you know, right? You know in the back of your head, it probably won't. But... Yeah, you remember There's, those times. It's not a zero percent. <laughs> yeah, I do. So how did you behaviorally broach that message with confidence, knowing that there actually is some chance that things could get worse and worse and worse? Somebody observed on your podcast just recently that the way that things get down to 90% is by going down 80 and then losing half their value. That's pretty intimidating. I can tell you an anecdote about one of the meetings we had, and then I'll answer your question. As we were walking in to meet with the head of the whole family, the man who built the business from which the wealth came, his wife looked at us and apologized. We had probably lost her $100 million in the last couple months, and she looked at us like she felt terribly sorry for us that we were about to have this meeting. So he was not gentle on us. But on the other hand, I think that a uh, Pascal's wager is that if the world ends, doesn't matter. So you might as well behave as if it's not going to, right? It only ends once. And if it does, it doesn't matter what you did right ahead of time. And so I think we use that as a way of giving him confidence that it would be fine. And indeed, we had a pool of capital that was designed to never go below a certain level. And so he said, look, we can rest on that. That will exist. You needn't worry about that pool of capital. And we'll work on ways to rebuild the other side of the ledger. How long did you stay with the family? I was with the family six terrific years learned a ton of basic business principles from that fellow I just mentioned, Dick Farmer. Incredible, amazing lion of industry. What were those principles? And a neat person. Well, for example, the probably the key takeaway was the value is in the discussion. So you have to have a well-informed group of participants in a discussion where people can bring up all the various viewpoints, can espouse different perspectives, and then everybody can come to an agreement. Not everybody has to get to exactly the same outcome, but you can respectfully discuss all the competing interests and various facts. And then usually some human being has to make the final decision. He would say the value is in the discussion, and then he would joke, but I'm going to vote shares. <laughs> of course, he knows the shares. So that was extremely valuable. And there were a number of other tidbits along those lines. When you have an advantage, push it. Press it really hard. He managed to get patent protection on a process for cleaning uniforms. It was a uniform company that he ran called Cintas. 
And it was only about two years. And so he pushed that advantage as hard as he could and created a, uh, a durable lasting advantage for the company that would last maybe a couple more decades. So when you have a little lever, pull it. Any other gems? Well, Dick Farmer's airplane left when Dick Farmer was on it. So you, sometimes that was 15 minutes before departure time. So might as well get there early. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what was the impetus for moving over to Cincinnati? University of Cincinnati had the job opening. And there were two of us, Tim Cavanaugh and I were, were co-CIOs, and that was fine. We made it work, but it's not an optimal structure, and, and either of us could have done the, basically two people doing one person's job. So we were able to each assume control of our own pool of capital, and I was very, very excited to work for a university. I had amazing family office clients. I was very excited to work for a larger pool of capital, and Family offices, you know, like I said earlier, there's a range of different qualities. Endowments, I think, are generally regarded as all pretty high quality places. And so just from a kind of good housekeeping seal of approval, I was eager to have that experience as well. And when you walked into Cincinnati, was there a prior CIO? There was. I was the second CIO. The prior CIO had been there about six years, did a terrific job with governance, structure, oversight, had helped oversee a transition with the treasurer had started to do direct private equity investments and direct hedge fund investments. So the ball was rolling really well when I arrived. And it gave me an opportunity, I think, to step it up and, and make some significant moves in the right direction of just more of most of the things I just mentioned. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And 1, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. NetSuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. So let's start with what's there. What does it mean to have a good functioning governance structure? It is the underpinning. It is necessary but insufficient to have success. You can't have success with a bad governance structure. And a bad governance structure includes not only a very clear delineation of roles and responsibilities, and also the right roles and responsibilities, I think it's extremely difficult, if not impossible, for a committee to pick private equity managers in quarterly meetings. I don't think, for example, that works very well. Maybe you could make it work, but that would be a, a hurdle you'd be overcoming. And so discretion within the office is critical, I think. Clear discretion and clear rules around what the office can do. In our example, we were able to hire and fire managers and manage exposures within the pre-approved ranges by the investment committee. We recommend as strategic asset allocation ranges and targets and then the investment committee approves those, approves a kind of risk level, which there's no way of defining, articulating a risk level. So it's more of an iterative, intuitive process, but uh, that's also their role. 
And then they are responsible for making recommendations regarding hiring and firing the CIO. So there's accountability. There's a sharp line drawn between the amount of risk and the implementation of that risk. And I think that that structure works very well. We have a very well-written investment policy statement that lays that all out very clearly, lays out the goals of the, of the portfolio and the roles of other entities across the university and so forth. So the other part of it is not so much written down, but culture. And the governance and oversight culture at the University of Cincinnati involves basically the investment office and the investment committee partnering up. So we have a very collaborative relationship. We in the investment office seek to try to continue that by being incredibly transparent with them, as transparent as we, they get to know any single thing they want. But you have to balance that against accidentally giving away discretion, right? If you tell them too much and in, in the wrong order or ask them the wrong questions at the wrong time, you effectively give them discretion over choosing managers. And so we're all cognizant of the fact that that's a risk and work around it, but the culture matters a lot. And I've heard of some investment committees that either are micromanagers or have a combative relationship with the investment office. And I don't really know how that evolves, but I know that at the end, that's not very productive. Yeah. Can you give an example of where that conversation went awry? We never had that problem. So I'm very pleased to report that we've managed around that. So what you want to do is have buy-in from your committee on the process and ideally on the portfolio as well, so that if something should go wrong, they understand why it's in there. If a private equity manager should stumble, for example, they understand why it's there. And ideally, they can even be enthusiastic about and push us to invest more with that manager or go in the offense. In order to achieve that, we had what we called information sessions, which were basically offline discussions with the subset of investment committee members where we gave them all the details of a manager ahead of making the investment. We were very clear on every one of those calls that we're not asking for your approval. We're not asking you to endorse or not endorse. We're asking you to listen, provide feedback, and provide any yeah. connections you have. So that's just a kind of practice that yeah. keeps those lines crisp and keeps the responsibilities where they belong. Did you make any changes to the asset allocation structure when you got there? I did. We had, I guess I'll just get specific. We had about 30% in fixed income when I arrived, and we dropped that immediately to 15%. When I say immediately, we had a responsible staged migration that took about one year. Those are the times where you can really get killed. There's only a few ways to lose money permanently, fraud, buying something at an outrageously high price, excessive concentration or, or leverage. But the big one that everybody that happens the most frequently is whipsawing yourself and changes in strategy are when you can do that. Either when you chicken out at the wrong time, get too aggressive at the wrong time, or in our case, just are changing strategies, a transition between one group and the next. So we managed that very, very carefully over the course of calendar 2012, and actually had a great 2012 by some dumb luck and maybe a little bit of intelligence. <laughs> so we had 30% fixed income when I arrived, moved that to 15%, took a bunch of those percentage points and put them in a kind of absolute return hedge fund portfolio, also increased our private equity. So generally just increased alternatives at the cost of mostly a fixed income into a little bit U.S. public equity. And was that private equity venture capital? Nope. I have made my first venture capital investment about four months ago since I became a CIO in 2008. And was that in one of the funds that you deem... It was. We were extremely fortunate at the University of Cincinnati with our alums. You might not necessarily think that a little Midwestern Rivertown University, although we're actually huge, 48,000 students, 16,000 faculty and staff. You might not think that that's a hotbed of venture capital managers, but we have one of the world's best, whose name I'm not going to say, 
who is not only extremely talented, but very grateful to UC for all it did for him and was able to get us into one of the names you'd really want to get into. So that was an exciting moment for us. So how do you think about an allocation like that where I'm assuming it's not very much money and it's probably a one-off? I'm hopeful that it's at least a series of one-offs. Well, with that one firm. (laughs) You're right, yeah. And I can't imagine it's a very high allocation. It's not as big as we'd like, certainly. I'll say that what we've been trying to do is leverage that to be able to gain access to other similar firms, right, that either have a good relationship with this human being or look at it and say, oh, I see that you are a good LP because you have this. So what I'd like to do is leverage that one single thing. But I think it fits in with our ethos of doing our investments almost entirely bottom up especially in a place like private equity, anybody who said nothing lasts forever has not been in a bad private equity fund. They're just brutal. It's incredible <laughs> how much you know, life force they can take out of you and how much return they can take out of the portfolio. So again, trying not to do anything for the wrong reasons. We don't make private equity investments because we think India is exciting. We would only make a private equity investment because we found a single manager who was a very exciting manager and happened to be in India, just as a single example. So everyone runs around, you know, whether it's in private equity or public equity and hedge funds, and they want to be with the best managers. What does the best manager mean? Well, I suppose people define that differently. For a gigantic pension, perhaps the best manager is the one with whom you can put $400 million or with whom you can have a lot of co-investment. That's not at all how we look at it. And I will also offer to you that we don't really look for the best manager. Aside from venture capital, which is an extraordinary part of the investing world, we're not trying to hit the top mark because in doing so, you risk hitting the bottom too. The way we look at private equity is if we can do nothing for the wrong reasons and make all of our decisions for the right reasons, then we can probably cut out the bottom fifth, quarter, maybe third of the distribution. In which case, if we pick median now, all of a sudden you're talking about two-thirds of the way up, almost top quartile. And we're not usually swinging for the fences. What we're trying to do is find very reliable execution, high conviction ideas that are managers that add value to their companies, that buy things at reasonable prices, that use low leverage. And we think if you have a portfolio of those things, and there can be a million of those things, if they're three, four, five hundred million dollars, every town can have four of them successfully. So there's not a shortage of those names. The difficulty there is sourcing them. It's really challenging to find ones in Austin and St. Louis and Nashville. They are there. And we devoted a lot of energy to finding those. To us, that's kind of the, the best portfolio that you could have is a whole group of those high conviction ideas. How about in the public markets? In the public markets, there are a handful of groups that seem to be able to put up good numbers, even in long-only world, year after year after year after year. They're pretty rare, and they've been closed for a long time. So we take two approaches there. Number one, if we have them, we try to stuff as much money into those sorts of managers as we can. And if we don't have them, we wait for them to stumble and we give them a call. And actually last, almost exactly a year ago, a manager just had a problem that was very public and, and reflected poorly on them. And we called and said, hey, can we get in? and ended up adding a nice little slug to them on December 31st of last year's results. We do everything the hardest, most painful way possible because we think that's the best way to do it. It's sort of uh, the output that it's painful and difficult, but it's, it's also what we think is the smartest way. So we don't mind finding a group that's already incredibly uh, successful, that's very difficult to access, and just beating our heads against it until we get in. And we've been remarkably successful at getting into funds that many folks otherwise can't access. What's that due diligence process like where you have an agenda which is to get into the fund. And that also engenders this sort of confirmation bias that you want to believe that's the fund you want to get into. Well, we're not afraid of saying no after begging and begging and begging in. 
we're not afraid of saying no at any time. And we have done so after a tremendous amount of work. It's hard. <laughs> that doesn't feel good. But uh, we're not afraid of saying no after a huge amount of work and after saying we desperately want in your fund. The due diligence has to be very pointed, very, very focused on key issues at that point, because you're unlikely to have a, a really long, drawn out due diligence process, right? You probably don't have that much time spent in their office with the key principals asking them the ordinary sorts of questions. So what we do in those cases is try to do all the homework up front. This is generally true, but also especially true in these sorts of What does that homework look like? Well, we have some consultants. So we study and study and study the, the results of their analyses. We also talk to them endlessly about the firms, ask all the questions we would ask directly to the firm. We do a lot of referencing ahead of time so that when we sit down with those groups, we can dial in directly to the key issues, organizational turnover, the specific way they add value to companies, and so on. Is there a story in there with begging and begging and then getting access and then doing the work and then walking away? Yeah, there are a number of those stories, actually. We were looking at a group, I'm going to be vague, a group in the Midwest that's a sector-focused firm run by two really compelling people, brilliant, brilliant people with a sensational track record. And we begged our way in. And we Every time we went to this city, we met with them for years, for three or four years. We probably met with them eight times during that and sent them Christmas cards and were as nice as we could be and, and it built what I think was a real personal relationship, which I think is key in this business, notwithstanding the financial nature of it. And so finally, we got access to due diligence and had an opportunity to invest a real amount with the fund. And on our final due diligence visit, we walked in and the whole staff had this aura of arrogance from the from the first person we met to the last person we met, their view was basically, you are so lucky to be here. On top of that, they had some, some fee structure that was terribly misaligned, and they were determined not to change that. And so for reasons that are not necessarily box checking, they ended up being the art side of this, not the science. We ended up saying, no, I'm comfortable with that decision, but holy moly, did we waste a lot of time on that. Were you not able to pick up the arrogance ahead of time? We had started to notice it, and I think it changed over the due diligence process and culminated in this meeting where it was across a line. And it also just gave us this sense that this wasn't the firm that had generated the returns that we were so eager to access. This was a different firm that the odds were much lower they would be as, as successful. What's another story like that? There was a, uh, a healthcare-focused firm. This is probably a decade ago. There was a healthcare-focused firm that had a, uh, a hedge fund and a private equity fund. And I spent several years, again, trying to access this hedge fund. It was closed the whole time. They decided they would launch this private equity fund. And if you invested in the private equity fund, you would have access to the hedge fund. After a long due diligence process, and they were a little bit more open, so we got to spend more time with them. This was before I joined the University of Cincinnati. We realized that they had a resetting high watermark, and perhaps I should have noticed that earlier, but that was a deal killer to me. You can't have a resetting high watermark. It's a total misalignment of interests. And also, we decided not to invest in that hedge fund. We did invest in the private equity fund because the timing of them was such that we had already done so. And I was horrified by that. I'll never do another staple deal again. Well, at the end of the day, that actually was a really good investment. So <laughs> as Napoleon might tell you, dumb luck is an acceptable way of succeeding. Yeah. So you mentioned a couple of things about terms that were deal killers for you in, in these two examples. How do you think about fees? What matters is net returns to us. 
And so if a fund is able to generate really reliable, exceptional returns, net of all their fees, I'm less worried about it. On the other hand, looking forward, you don't know if they're going to generate those sorts of returns. You're pretty sure they're going to generate those sorts of fees. So it's situational. But one thing I want is transparency. One thing that I think is developing is staged or tiered carry. If a fund generates three times their money in a IRR that's 30% or above, I think a 25% carry may make a lot of sense. What I don't want to see is 12 different sources of revenue, some of which look like maybe they're calculated on a leveraged company value and fee offset that's below 100%. That just makes me feel like you're trying to make money off of our money, even if we don't make money. So somewhat nuanced view. I don't detest high fees. I don't expect private equity fees to go down anytime soon. Uh, And I think there's a place for having a healthy fund. That's another reason, by the way, we invest in smaller funds, because the largest fund managers not only have astronomical fee revenue streams, but they're also the cleverest people in the world about charging fees that we can't see. And I don't want to play that game with them. Is there anything about your due diligence process that you figured out that you think is kind of a special nugget? I mentioned earlier, we do everything the hardest way possible. We effectively make up our investment process from scratch every time. Now that sounds horrible. We've done it enough times that we can get all of the important parts of it addressed. What we avoid is checking boxes. Again, that's another thing where you ask the question for the wrong reasons, right? We avoid doing things for the wrong reasons. So I detest checklists. We actually have a thing in our process called a non-checklist, which is stupid because in trying to make sure that we've done all the important parts of it after we go back and say, did you do this? Did you do X? What did you do? Y? did you do Z? But I think it's valuable to make it up as you go along because it allows you flexibility to adapt to changing market environment, to identify the key issue or issues at each individual firm. And every one of these is different and also enables you to learn each time what are different factors at different firms without being focused on fitting everything into the same box. And so I think for a little tiny team like ours, led by a couple people who have been looking at private equity for, I guess, 22 years and 12 years, respectively, I think that you can do it that way. It probably is helpful to have a checklist afterward to make sure you got all the things, but <laughs> so far we haven't, <laughs> we haven't missed things. And I think that that bottom-up approach is very valuable for flexibility and for key learning looking forward. What are the specific things to the University of Cincinnati that color how you go about the investing program? I think that's exactly the right question because every institutional investor, every owner of capital has a distinct personality and notwithstanding the commonalities among different pools, have potentially slightly different goals for their pools of capital. So at the University of Cincinnati, we have, just like everybody else, a little bit of history. So there are certain kinds of real estate investments that just cause people to have indigestion. And so there's no sense spending time on those for historical reasons. There's a certain risk tolerance that is more the human beings involved than perhaps the university. In other words, the humans can take less risk and believe less risk is appropriate than really the university from a kind of mathematical perspective could take. And then that's appropriate because what they're doing is trying to match the risk of the portfolio to the community, to donors to the fundraising effort, to the president. And even the best strategy in the world doesn't work if you can't survive to the payoff date, right? 
there are some other positives about the University of Cincinnati. One is the alums I just mentioned. There's one, a couple really special alums. And then there's a handful of incredibly dedicated, incredibly intelligent people who show up quarterly and provide us with their best advice, their full open book of contacts. This is our investment committee. And do it with no ego and doing it for the right reasons. And I'm extremely grateful to them for their mentorship and their, and their guidance. And their partnership in running what is, these are difficult pools of capital. We, <laughs> one of the things that people probably don't grasp is that the 5% spending rule makes absolutely no sense for about the last 20 years. And so a lot of folks are addressing that by reducing their spending policies. I think four is the new five among endowments. It should probably be three handle, and I bet it will be soon. But what that means is that we're making up for a long time where we frankly overspent and are trying to rebuild endowments at a time where returns are low and, and volatile. So when you look back, why is the 5% too high? One of the things that is counterintuitive to most folks, first of all, just from a historical standpoint, the 5% was created when interest rates were like at nine. If you think of it as interest rates minus four, <laughs> the spending policy should be negative two now, which doesn't make any sense, of course. But we're spenders. We sell when we're down and we sell when we're up and we sell in the middle and the calculation methodology, the formula for that 5% is looking over the last three years or five years or seven years, depending on what institution. And sometimes it's a different model, but many of them have that kind of moving average spending policy. And that means that after 2008, people were spending 5% based on the last couple years values, which was 10% based on their 2009 values. And so what that does is it takes a significant number of dollars out of the endowment. So it is very difficult to recover the number of dollars that are recovering is much, much less than the number of dollars that got, that got hit by the crisis. And so it just requires certainly years, if not decades, to recover from that kind of hit. The other thing is that most folks have a foundation fundraising fee that goes to their fundraising arm to help their budget, which means that that 5% is actually a little higher than it sounds. It may be 5.5 five or 5.7 or, or even 6 and so while the returns looked like they were much higher than that, they were very, very volatile. And during those down periods we spent, because we had scholarships to fund and we had professors that showed up. And so that volatility takes a lot out of it too, makes it worse than it seems. In a pool your size with a team your size, how do you think about competing with others? Mm -hmm. On the one hand, what other people do has absolutely no bearing on what we do. On the other hand... I'm a, an extremely innately competitive person. I don't think it's unfair or, or overly charitable to say that I'm ambitious on behalf of the university, but I definitely want to beat all those other folks. And I'm delighted to tell you that we were top quartile the last year and three years, meaninglessly short time periods, but still proud of it. We try to do what we can do the best way we can do it. And we think that, again, not screwing it up is 95% of the way to doing a good job. Not dropping the ball means that you can score touchdowns. And we do a very good job of that. Try to make sure that when we do make mistakes, they're inevitable, right? When we do make mistakes, they're small. They're the ones that you can afford and they're low impact on the portfolio. So it's really about just trying to make sure we have really good execution. Yeah. What's been your biggest mistake? We invested in a hedge fund that was a low volatility hedge fund that had an outsized position in it, which I failed to identify during due diligence. It ended up costing the portfolio something like, I think, 40 basis points at the top line. So not a big deal. And we legged into it as we normally do, part of that effort to minimize the impact of, of investments. It was in 2014 around the whole. There were a couple different things that occurred in September, October of 2014 in absolute return hedge fund world. And it took a little chunk out of our returns and 
I think we learned some very important lessons from it. I don't think we'll make that same mistake again. But I'm also grateful that we had some of the practices in place that we did have so that it was minimized. What's your view on concentration after having that experience? In our hedge fund portfolio, we have 10 positions. And we think that 10 positions is about the right amount of diversification. It's about the maximum amount of diversification in order for us to be able to monitor and manage and understand and know those hedge funds really, really well. So there's a certain just resource balancing that has to go on there. And that's true across the whole portfolio as well. We couldn't have a portfolio of 100 positions. We're a too small team. So we have roughly half that, including both public and private. And we think we can know them very, very well. And some of them are big passive positions. We have a huge slug of Vanguard 500. And I don't know if that's dorky or not among my endowment brethren, but I don't care if it makes a lot of money for the university. That's what I'm focused on. And so with some of those positions, we can maybe have a little bit more in active positions that we need to monitor more closely. But that's a key trade-off for a team our size. How do you balance the passive Vanguard SP 500 with an active manager? And how do you think about that trade-off? There are places where you can get as much return as you're likely to get and pay almost nothing for it. Some P500 is a great place just to accept the return of the marketplace and strive for excess returns elsewhere. Again, with just a handful of people, we need to be careful about where we spend our time. It probably makes no sense at all to try to outperform the S&P 500 today. Similarly with our fixed income, we want to get it right one time and move on. And so we did a lot of due diligence a few years ago and a couple different managers chose to, and we monitor. We don't spend much time understanding the whole global universe of core fixed income managers. We do spend a lot of time in our private equity, private natural resources, private real estate parts of our portfolio, and a lot of time on our hedge funds because we think that those are the places where, and from a mathematical perspective, they have much larger dispersion. So I think that there's reason to believe that those are the places where we can get good return on calories. So what's next on the horizon? What opportunities are you excited about? The opportunities in the portfolio, I would say this, I guess I'm in my eighth year now, I feel like we have set it up, but it's only step one. And there has to be a resetting. I mean, the last eight years has been more or less directionally one kind of market. We're a little lower on the risk spectrum. We can take more risk in the portfolio within our strategic asset allocation framework just by choosing different types of managers and by having a different level of concentration in some areas. So I feel like we've set the table, but we haven't gotten aggressive yet. And I think that carefully, whenever the next price reset occurs, we can set up a whole new period of returns by buying assets at the discount and by investing in groups that are able to do that. Great. Well, Carl, let's turn to a couple of closing questions. Yes, sir. What's your favorite talent or hobby? Is something either that you do today or did in your past? Well, I would like to answer that in two ways. First of all, my wife and I are lucky enough to be able to work out every morning together. And so that is one of my favorite parts of the day. And almost every single day, it's the only time she and I actually get to talk. So it's wonderful. <laughs> what working out do you guys do? We have a trainer and we throw some weights around and run. And it's a lot of sprinting and breathing hard. And she kicks my butt every morning. It's impressive. The other thing is that my family and I have gone on some really neat vacations recently to places like Arizona for spring break, Iceland, Norway, Sweden. And the amount you can learn from touching other cultures, even ones as similar as those are to American culture, it has been incredibly valuable for me and my kids. Also, those places are really pretty. What's your biggest investment pet peeve? The annual single year return derby. 
that the media focuses on. And, you know, we're all complicit in to some degree. I have ceased to ever show one year, notwithstanding the fact that I mentioned it about 20 <laughs> years ago, right? I have ceased to show anyone one year returns versus peers. And I hope that a bunch of Big Ten endowments and those like you see that are kind of on the periphery of Big Ten endowments have agreed never to provide New Cubo, for example, with one-year returns because we think that that sets some terrible precedents. It's a huge distraction. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? The most important thing my father taught me and taught it to me both by saying it and by demonstrating it is your kids are only around for a real brief time. And if you're not there when they're there, they leave and you've missed that opportunity. And I can't believe how quickly my children have grown up. I have a 16-year-old boy now and a 10-year-old on the other end. And it's amazing. They're going to be gone. They're going to be off in college and then gone leading their own lives. And it feels like they were born just yesterday. So that's the most important thing from a kind of life perspective. He was a dentist, so he didn't have the best investment advice. (laughs) (laughs) What information do you read that you get a lot out of that other people might not know about? I'm a bit of a historian on markets, and I think it's incredibly valuable to go back and read about different regimes in history. So I read a book called Golconda about 20s and 30s. I'm reading a book called Devil Take the Hindmost, which is a history of crashes and manias. There's a book called The Go-Go Years, about the late 60s. It's remarkable how much overlap there is in how the human beings involved behave, in the behavior of the people involved in those markets. And I think it's extremely valuable to see that these things happen over and over and over and be able to apply some of those lessons to current markets. I started in investing world in the mid-90s, which means I get to see long-term capital management and the Thai bot and the ruble and then the bursting of the internet bubble and WorldCom Enron and then the global financial crisis and Europe. So I've seen a, a number of different interesting things, but it's also valuable to expand that as much as possible. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? Well, I suppose all of them, <laughs> but to answer your question specifically, you're unable to control the future and the past is the past. It's gone. So you got to focus on right now, And you're really not even able to control that. So what you are able to control is your own behavior, your own process. You have to focus on doing everything you can right in that regard. And then what unfolds will unfold, and you can't be too worked up about that. Carl, thanks so much for taking the time. Ted, it was really my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Before you take off, I've created three different ways for you to stay updated on the podcast and my blog according to your preferences. First, you can sign up to receive a monthly email with a few great things I've read and listened to over the month. Second, for more prompt delivery, you can subscribe to my blog and receive emails when each podcast episode and blog post come out. And last, you can access the full library of transcripts by signing up for a premium subscription. All three options are available on the homepage at capitalallocatorspodcast.com. Thanks for your support.